The final words of dying men and women are, are very interesting sometimes. And if you're like me, I also like walking around cemeteries looking at what people put on tombstones. When, when people are dying, usually what they have to say is, is not what often they've said during their life. If you're a Christian, hopefully it's consistent. But a lot of times they come toward the end of their life and, and the hypocrisy gets stripped away. They reflect accurately on what, what are their real, true beliefs and feelings. Just for example, Napoleon, when he was on his deathbed, he said, I die before my time and my body will be given back to earth to become the food of worms. Such is the fate which so soon awaits the great Napoleon. And then not long before Gandhi died, they, uh, that world-renowned Hindu religious leader, he confessed, quote, my days are numbered. I'm not likely to live very long, perhaps a year or a little more. For the first time in 50 years, I find myself in a slough of despond. All about me is darkness. I am praying for light. The 19th century French statesman Talleyrand, he wrote these words. In, in fact, he wrote it on a piece of paper, and he put it on the nightstand next to his deathbed. He said, Behold, 83 years passed away. What cares? What agitation? What anxieties? What ill will? What sad contemplations? And all without other results except great fatigue of mind and body and a profound sentiment of discouragement with regard to the future and of disquiet with regard to the past. It makes you want to cry when you read those words. But the Apostle Paul's Holy Spirit-inspired words are vastly different from what I just read to you. Praise God for that. Very different. As Paul ends the, his earthly life, we have this last chapter, as far as we know, last chapter in the Bible uh, for, for Paul. These are his last words that he wrote in Holy Scripture. And they're a triumphant epitaph. They are a grand testimony, therefore the name of this sermon. And so we have, th this is coming some 30 years after Paul's encounter with Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road. And he comes now to the end of his life and he he has no remorse, no regret. That's the way I want to come to the end of my life. And my friends, that's the way I want you to come to the end of your life. And so we're going to look at Paul's testimony here, which will hopefully offer great motivation for all of us as believers, if you're a believer in Christ, to hopefully live faithfully to Christ all the way to the very end of your life. So look at... Uh, 2 Timothy 4, verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me also, but to all who have loved His appearing. So I propose to you today, my friends, that God wants you to live faithfully in His will. And if you live in His will, and you do that faithfully, 
You're going to come to the end of your life and you're going to say, that was a good life. That was a good life. But this is not easy living faithfully for God in His will. And so sometimes we need some motivation. I think Paul offers the right motivation here to live faithfully in God's will. And so let's let's see what motivated Paul to to do what he did, to be faithful to Christ. Despite all the bad things that happened in his life, he was faithful to the end. So hopefully what motivated Paul is going to motivate you. So number one, number one, for those in God's will, the present holds no fear. The present holds no fear if you are in God's will. Now how is that even possible? Well, verse 6 gives us the first point we need to think about here. Because Paul says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Paul's borrowing some very vivid images here from, particularly from Jewish custom, where they would pour out juice at the base of the altar where they would, they would take their lamb as a part of their ritual sacrifice. And and so they would pour out the juice there at the altar. And so the image of juice splashing down uh, on the altar became a metaphor for how Paul regarded his own life. But Paul's also thinking of his life as something that is triumphant here. He's not not down, you know, emotionally speaking. It's clear Paul didn't think of himself as about to be executed, which that was going to happen very soon. But that's not how he was thinking of his life. He was thinking of his life as being poured out as as an offering to God. Because he recognized it wasn't his life anyway. And so from the time of his conversion, everything he had was given to God. And by the way, that is the right perspective. Paul recognized his, his, his wealth was God's, his body was God's, his intellect, mind was God's, all of his passions, his position as an apostle, belonged to God. All of his reputation, his whole identity, relationship and dreams and so forth. It was all God's. And that's the right perspective. And so for years, Paul had lived that way, recognizing that his body and life belonged to God. And so the blood of his life was the only thing that yet that needed to be given to God. And so now, here we, Paul, Paul's willing for his very life to be spilled out on the altar. And all that remained was his very breath. And he triumphantly gave that, by the way. As far as we know, history tells us, Paul went to his death praising God, being faithful to the very end. But it starts with a life that is given to God, recognizing it, it belongs to him. And so, Listen to what Paul says here in Romans 12.1. This is his perspective. Because he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Your entire life is worship to God. And so that's a continual process of presenting your life, your body, was a living sacrifice. I found out, though, that the challenge here is 
you have to keep doing this because living sacrifices don't like staying in the fire. When the fire gets hot, it's very tempting to jump off the fire, (laughs) as I've found many times in my life. And so God wants you to be that living sacrifice. Stay there where, where he wants you to be. Do what he wants you to do. Well, because Paul had continually done this throughout his life, he didn't fear death. And so he's, he's coming now to the end of his life, and he can honestly say, I am already being poured out. Already being poured out. His life has been presented. And so part of that would, would include his very death. And so how can the present hold no fear? Well, Paul says, do you have that perspective that your life is continually being poured out? If you do, you're not going to, you know, the, the, nothing's going to hold you in fear. So how can the present hold no fear? Number two, look what he says. He's, it's by being willing to die for Christ and his cause. Are you? Because Paul says, the time of my departure has come. That's an interesting way to describe your death. So by calling death a departure here, Paul's indicating, number one, he knew his life is going to end and that he had no fear of the end. He had no fear of his earthly life ending, or in other words, what we call death. The word translated departure there is used in very interesting ways in the Greek language. might be illuminating for you to think about. Number one, it was the Greeks would use this word departure in regard to the loosing of a ship from its moorings. So picture a Picture a ship with the ropes tied at the dock, you know, you know, tied off so the ship can't float away. And so when the ship needed to take off to sea, they would, they would undo the rope, all the ropes so that the ship could sail away. So Paul's thinking of his very earthly life as just untying the ropes of the ship. Or a, another way they used it was Greek soldiers would, they would use departure when they say it was time to, re, to take the stakes out of the ground of their tent fold up their tent and march on somewhere else. And so the point is, Paul's looking at this as it's not the end. It's just a change. Just a change. It's really not the end. And I love the way C.S. Lewis, he, he, he got so many things right. And he got it right in the Chronicles of Narnia yet again. In the very last book of the Chronicles of Narnia, the last words, in fact, of the last book, which is called The Last Battle, the figure of Jesus Christ called Aslan explains to these deceased children this. Here's what he says. I'm quoting from the book. He says, For them it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. End quote. (laughs) Love it. It's coming one day, friends. It's coming. You've only lived... What what did Lewis call it? You've only lived... What? The cover and title page. (laughs) Most of the books yet to come for you. And so that's good news for a Christian anyway. Death is not the end. It's just exchanging the burden of 
your earthly life for the eternal joy of heaven. Paul firmly believed this, and that's why he lived the way he did. And so he could say in Philippians, for me to live is what? Christ. And to die is gain. Can you say that? You, you, you can't say that unless you have the right perspective on what is your life. So final departure was the culmination, if you will, of Paul's long-term dream that he had talked about in Philippians chapter 1. Do you remember Philippians 1? He said, I am hard-pressed between the two. What, what, what two is he talking about? He says, well, I have this desire to depart and to be with Christ. For that is far better. That is far better to, to die and to be with Christ. And so he says, I have, I'm hard pressed between that and staying and living and ministering to you, Philippians. Well, that's the conundrum. Well, here we have a man who's looking imminent death in the face, so to speak. He's, he's in prison. He know, he know the, the, uh, the emperor is going to kill him. But yet he didn't fear because he knew exactly where he was. He was in God's will. He was in God's will. He didn't fear. Paul didn't die like Napoleon did and like Gandhi did and Talleyrand and many, many others have. The apostle faced his departure with no feeling of futility. He, he didn't go to it with hopelessness, with a despair, or he wasn't in despond. But he had a divine assurance that his real life was about to begin. And he could confidently say many powerful verses we have in Scripture. Here's just one in 1 Corinthians 15, 53. Precious words. Paul's confident here and he says, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Those are confident words from a confident man because he's living for Christ. <laughs> he's in God's will. And so the present doesn't hold him in the grip of fear. But there's another motivation that, that Paul gives here. He says in verse 7, For those in God's will, the past is a triumph. He's able to come to the end of his life, and he said it was worth it. It wasn't worthless. It was worth it. I love verse 7. Because Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I cannot help wondering how we too can live like that. And, and uh, don't you want to come to the end of your life and be able to, to, to think that way and, and talk that way? How is Paul able to make those kind of claims? Some people have said Paul's being proud here. I don't think he is. What was the, what was the motive of his spiritual faithfulness? How did he accomplish this? Well, guess what? He actually gives the answer in, in the three parts, those three phrases there in verse 7. 
But as we look at verse 7, I want to kind of break it down into five principles that I hope will be helpful. And these five principles are expressed or implied in here in this verse. Think of these as, as the foundation for Paul's life. Paul's life and service, that is. Number one, here's the first principle. We need to recognize we are in a excuse me. We are in a spiritual struggle. We're in a spiritual struggle. Paul says, I have fought. Have fought. It's an interesting verb. It's an action verb. It's a Greek verb. Let me just give you the English-sized form of it for you. You'll probably notice some English words we get out of this. The Greek is agonizomai. Sounds familiar? Agonizomai. Uh, and, and then fight is a related word, agon. Uh, as you'd probably guess, there's, those are the, a lot of Greek words that are a source of English words. We get uh, English words from that, words like agonizing and agony. So in New Testament times, here's the point. Both words were commonly used in reference to athletic contests, particularly it might have been used in uh, the Greek Olympic Games. And some of those contests they would be involved in were agonizing. If you've ever watched the Olympics, you know, sometimes you see people just collapse. They have nothing left in the tank to give. That's the idea here. It's agonizing. It's just It can be very, very painful what these people put their bodies through. And Paul's saying, I've agonized. I have fought. It's a spiritual warfare. The faithful and productive Christian life is nothing less than a fierce and relentless struggle. If I try to tell you anything else, it would be a lie. In fact, Paul goes on in other places, like Ephesians 6, verse 12. He he says, you're not fighting against flesh and blood. He said, you're fighting against the rulers, against the powers, against those world forces of darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness up there in the heavenly places. He's talking about Satan and the demons. They, they have their various ranks. And commenting on that particular verse, a commentator by the name of William Hendrickson said this, quote, It had been a fight against Satan, against the principalities and powers, the world rulers of this darkness in the heavenlies, or heaven." against Jewish and pagan vice and violence, against Judaism among the Galatians, against fanaticism amongst the Thessalonians, against contention, fornication, and litigation among the Corinthians, against incipient Gnosticism among the Ephesians and Colossians, against fightings without and fears within, and last but not least, against the law of sin and death operating within his own heart. End quote. That's the spiritual struggle we all have. And so Paul recognized that, and it's helpful to recognize that you are in a fight. It's going to require some agony, some agonizing effort and struggle on your behalf. If you don't, if you see see this life as, you know, you try to have this view that this is your best life now, you won't make it. You will 
you will not end your life as a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. But Paul goes on and gives a second principle. The cause of Christ is the greatest cause. He was highly dedicated to the cause of Christ. Why is that? Well, the text reminds us, as Paul is saying here, he knew he was fighting the good fight. It was the good fight. And that word good in your Bible refers to that which is intrinsically good. In other words, it's good in itself. It's without any qualification. It's good. It also was used of that which was inherently and genuinely beautiful. And of things that fully conform to their basic nature and purpose. That's what Paul is saying about the good, the fight, that it is good. Christians are not saved simply or even primarily for their own sakes. That's not why you're on planet Earth. We are, first of all, saved for the glory of God, as well as to fulfill His holy calling, which includes making disciples. You are here as a witness for Jesus Christ to the unsaved world. That noblest of all callings to the noblest of all causes should motivate you, should inspire you. Every believer should be seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. And so it should motivate us then to yield our gifts, to yield our talents, to yield our time, and to yield our opportunities to lifelong service for Jesus Christ. You ever wonder what motivated Paul? Why? why he could go through all those beatings and the shipwrecks and the hunger and, and the slander and everything else he had to deal with? How could he endure all that? He knew he was in a good fight. It was a good fight. But number three, third principle he gives is, we see is, we avoid wandering and we have the self-discipline to stay on your divinely appointed course until it's finished. Kind of wordy, sorry. But notice the first part. Avoid wandering. What does Paul say? He says, I have finished the race. Some of your Bibles might call it a course. So my mission in this life, God-given mission, is to stay on course. God's given me a race, and I'm to stay on that mission, if you will, until He decides it's time for me to go home. It's interesting, that word course or race literally uh, was used in reference to running a race. It was metaphorically used of fulfilling your lifetime career uh, or your occupation or if you were a Greek soldier. It was used, hey, I, I'm to finish my life as a mili- in the military service. That was, that was another way it was used. Well, the writer of Hebrews warns of two major hindrances that will threaten to deflect believers from their God-given race or their God-given course. Hopefully you're familiar with Romans 12, verse 1. If not, please recommend you memorize it. The Bible says in Romans, or Hebrews 12, 1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So you'll see that imagery there again. 
We have a race to run. It's been set before you. It is God-given. God already knows what your race is. You just need to run it. But, as the text says, there's some things that will hinder you in running your course, your race of life. And so the, the writer here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, distinguishes weight from sin. Now, Oh, I have them underlined on my paper, but notice um, weight and sin there. They're not the same Greek word. Weight is, by the way, something that is not evil in and of itself. It's not inherently evil. It may be harmless and might even be worthwhile. It, It could be a good thing at points in your life. The danger and harm come when those kind of things hinder our service. It hinders your race, your course. When, when you get bogged down, when you're weighed down as you're running, uh, it, it could be something that distracts you, distracts your attention when you need to be concentrating. It, uh, it, it could be something that saps your energy where you need to be fully dedicated. Okay? Anything unnecessary that we allow into our lives that becomes a spiritual weight, needs to be removed. Did you see what Hebrews 12.1 says? Lay it aside. Let us lay that weight aside. Take it off. Stop running with it. It's hindering. And of course, you know you shouldn't run the race of life with sin. That's kind of obvious. That doesn't please God. It's not going to help you. But the writer of Hebrews goes on to point us to the only protection that you need. The only protection that you have against the weights and the sin of running your race, verse 2, says you need to fix your eyes on Jesus. Verse 2 says, you looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Keep looking. Never take your eyes off. Don't get distracted by a weight. Don't let that weight sap you of the energy of running your course. Don't let it weigh you down. The fourth principle Paul gives is we must treasure time. We must treasure time. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. All of us have time allotted to us by God. You have a set number of days that God has given to you in this race. None of us knows when that is going to run out. If anybody claims they know when, run. They're fools. (laughs) Okay, Nobody knows exactly when that's going to end. God knows, though. We do not know how long we're going to... How God's, how long's gonna hold open the door for us? How many opportunities we are gonna have? How, how much service He's gonna give to us? We don't know that for sure. But in Ephesians 5, Paul actually counsels them, listen closely, he says, be careful how you walk. This is your life, he says. He's talking about walking here. This is your lifestyle, your whole conversation. Why? He says, Careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. 
We live in evil days. Your life is a vapor, the Bible says. And so God gives us many things that don't have limit. Praise God, His love is unlimited. His grace is without measure, and and you could do more there. But you get the point, my friend. However, the time that God gives to you is limited. It is strictly measured. And so we need to treasure that time. The fifth principle is this. We must guard the Word of God. must guard the Word of God. This was the controlling element of everything Paul said and did. And we should, by the way, we we should want to say, as Paul says here, I have kept the faith. This is a good thing. This is what we should all want. Now, what does that mean, though? Uh, Have kept carries various ideas of watching over something. It means heeding. It means preserving something. What is is Paul saying that I'm watching over, I'm heeding, I'm preserving? What am I guarding? He says, the faith. Got to guard the faith. Well, specifically, we know at least that's got to be referring to the gospel, at bare minimum, the gospel of Jesus Christ, this good news. Christ lived the perfect life for you, and He died the perfect death in your place, and was buried, but He rose again, and He lives to intercede for us. So apparently, it's at least the gospel, but I would suggest to you it's more than that. Paul was concerned about guarding the entire Word of God. This, this, this body of doctrine, this biblical beliefs, he was so concerned about sound theology and healthy doctrine. And so the first requirement for keeping that treasure is to recognize it is a treasure. See, when you recognize something's a treasure, you treat it in a special manner, don't you? You don't... You, you treat your rubbish different from treasure. You know what I mean? You treat it very differently, don't you? Paul didn't look at the Word of God as rubbish. For him, it was a treasure. The gospel was the, the, the best thing in his life. Well, there's a beautiful and touching story that might help you to understand this. There's a story told of a young French girl who was born blind. In other words, she couldn't see. And after, after she learned to read by, by touching, a friend gave her a Braille copy of the Gospel according to Mark. You know what Braille is, right? That got these little bumps on the page, so people who, whose eyeballs aren't working can still feel the bumps and are able to read the Scriptures. And so she read it so much, she loved it so much that her fingers became calloused. Her fingers became so insensitive that she could no longer read the Bible. This concerned her so much that one day she did something I wouldn't recommend. She decided to cut the skin off her fingers to try to fix the insensitivity of her skin. Sadly, that didn't work. In fact, it made it worse. She was even more insensitive. The scars and the callousing was was a permanent scar. She gave up. She was sobbing. She was crying. She 
as she had the Word of God in her hand, this, this gospel according to Mark, she kissed it goodbye with her lips. She said, farewell, farewell, sweet word of my heavenly Father. And in doing so, she discovered that her lips were actually more sensitive than the skin of her fingers. And so she was able to rejoice, and she found a way to continue to read the Word of God by using her lips. I wish we all had that kind of an appetite for the Word of God. But Paul wanted to keep the faith, and he comes to the end of his life, and he's able to honestly say, I have kept the faith. But how do we keep the faith? We're still alive. How do you do that? What does that mean? What does that look like to keep the faith? Well, let me just give you three practical points, okay? Number one, first of all, you can't keep something you don't know. <laughs> if you don't even know you have a treasure, I mean, how are you going to keep that? So you've got to know that this is precious. The Word of God is precious. You've got to know it. And when you know it, you'll know it. it is a treasure worth guarding. But then once you know it's this, the, you, you know it, then you, you're going to recognize you need to obey it. So to keep the faith, you need to obey it. See, it's not enough to just give lip service and hear, as James says, don't let it go in one ear and out the other. James says, be a doer, not just a hearer only. Obey it. Do what it says. But this is one of those treasures you don't hoard. You don't want to be a pirate in dig a hole in the sand on some deserted island and throw your treasure in there and forget about it. No. This is a treasure that needs to be passed on. It needs to be shared. The Word of God must be shared. You need to know it, obey it, live it, and tell others. Sometimes your life is going to be the best gospel that someone can read. As you pass that on to others, they're going to see Christ in you. Paul goes on to give other motivation here in verse 8. For those in God's will, the future is glorious. But by the way, did you notice the three tenses here? Paul talks about his present, his past. But he ends by talking about the future. See, when you live in God's will, it's, it's all taken care of. Past, present, and future, all taken care of. And Paul knew his future was glorious. Because he was faithful to Christ in his past and his present. But why? Why is the future glorious? Well, Paul gives just two points. We, we could give more, I'm sure, but in this text, Paul gives you two. Number one, he says there is a reward. He calls it the crown. It's a reward. As verse 8 says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day. This reward is going to be based on, on, on more than just our motives, but it's also going to include our accomplishments. Proverbs 24 says this. Listen, three rhetorical questions. It says, Does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? I'm talking about God. God weighs your heart. The second rhetorical question, he says, And does he not know it who keeps your soul? Yes. The third one, And will he not render to man according to his work? 
Yes, is the answer. So God knows your motives. He knows your actions. He knows everything you do, you think, and you say. And He's going to reward you accordingly. Selfishly motivated good deeds. That's not good, by the way. Uh, They may be of great help to other people. They may be used by God for His glory, but they are not going to merit reward. If you don't believe me, read 1 Corinthians 13. Because it includes motives. You can do all sorts of wonderful things. You, you can even give your body to be burned as a sacrifice for God, 1 Corinthians 13 says. But if you don't do that for the right motive, which is love, Paul says it profits you nothing. But on the other hand, good work that is sincerely intended, but not completed through no fault of the doer, will merit a sincere doer's reward. Why? Because it... it what did we just read in Proverbs 24? It, God is the one who weighs your heart. He's the one who's going to measure that. Let me give you an example of how this might look. Some of you may have heard of William Borden. Way back in 1904, William Borden, who was a member of the Borden Dairy family, finished high school in the city of Chicago, was given a world cruise as his graduation present wealthy family, particularly while traveling through the Near East and the Far East, he became heavily burdened for the lost. After returning home, he spent seven years at Princeton University. A lot of the universities in the States used to be Christian. Anyway, he spent the first four in undergraduate work and the last three in seminary, studying the Bible. While in school, he penned these words in the back of his Bible, He said, no reserves, no reserves. Although his family pleaded with him to take control over this huge business, he insisted that God's call to the mission field had top priority. He gave it all up. And after he actually disposed of his family's wealth, he wrote in the back of his Bible again, no retreat. No retreat. On his way to China to witness to Muslims, he contracted cerebral meningitis in Egypt and died. After his death, someone looked through his Bible and discovered the final words in the back of his Bible. It said, no regrets. No regrets. He knew that the Lord doesn't require success. What is required of a steward, the Bible says? He be found faithful. Only faithfulness is required. William Borden accomplished virtually nothing of the ministry that that he longed for, that he envisioned, that he had planned for. He was cut off by death before he was even able to reach China. But his final declaration in the back of his Bible said, No regrets. How is someone like that able to say those kind of words? Because he had an assurance from God, I would believe, a well-founded assurance that he had genuinely sought and faithfully obeyed God's will. He believed he was in God's will, doing what God wanted him to do. 
when it's God's time to take him home, so be it. Paul was able to say here, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. That word crown, most commonly used of a wreath, that would be placed on the head of an athlete who won his race. See, they didn't have these gold, silver, and bronze medals that you see in the Olympics these days where they put them around their necks. No, they didn't have that back then. See, you would walk up to the judgment seat where the person would award you a wreath that would be made out of plants. And they valued those things greatly. It was the only prize that an ancient athlete received. But nevertheless, it was treasured as as a great treasure. When we believe in Christ as Savior and Lord, you know what He did for you? You know what He did for me? He imputed His righteousness to me. I am now able to live my life in Christ. And the Holy Spirit now works practical righteousness in me and through me. Yet I am still a sinner. Because of sin, the battle for His righteousness isn't perfected fully in me yet. And it's only at the completion of this battle that His righteousness is going to be perfected. I will be glorified. So when you receive that very crown of righteousness from the Lord's hand, it is is the victor's wreath, the victor's crown, this crown of righteousness that the Lord Himself will give to you. He is the judge who is going to award it on that day. You say, well... The Bible says uh, the Lord is the judge awarding to me on that day. When is that? What what is that day? I think that day is referring to a time in heaven. You can read about it in Corinthians and Romans. A place called the judgment seat of Christ. To shorten that is Bema. It's a place of reward for believers where you will receive what has been done in your body, whether it's good or bad. And so the glorious prospect of receiving God's crown of righteousness here, by the way, doesn't just apply to the Apostle Paul. So don't sit there and think, oh, that sounds really nice. I'd like to have that, but I'm not the Apostle Paul. Notice what Paul says. It applies to you as well. Because he says, not to me only, how do you get it? But to also to all who have loved His appearing. So I ask you, my friends, do you love Christ appearing? Does the thought of Christ returning bring pleasure to your mind or fear? Which is it? Hmm. <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, the, the, the have loved here is in the perfect tense. It's indicating the accomplishment of something done in the past which has this continuing effect. That's what it means, uh, uh, something in the perfect tense. The Bible talks a lot about love. For example, in 1 John, it says, chapter 4, verse 7, Love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And in verse 8, kind of says this, well, it does say this, is the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So, what do we see there? Love is absolutely essential. 
In fact, Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22. He says, if anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. Whoa. <laughs> How can you say you love the Lord, but yet you, you're, you're not looking forward to him coming back? Because you're too selfish with your life? <laughs> you, you, you feel like you haven't done everything on your bucket list or whatever? It doesn't make sense, does it? You don't really love the Lord if you're concerned about finishing your bucket list. John MacArthur said it this way, quote, A person who does not love God has no claim on God, either for salvation or for reward. And every true believer will love God and the things of God because love is the supreme and necessary mark of salvation. End quote. But do you love God? Do you love the thought of Christ's return? If you do, my friend, there is a reward for you as well. Not just for Paul, but for you. Why is the future glorious for Paul, though? He talks about a reward. But notice what he says. We've, we've already hinted at this. It is the return of Christ. Number two, the return of Christ. So as a true believer, I love the fact that Christ is coming again. He's promised He is. Do I believe it and live like it? I'm looking forward to coming into His divine presence where I can now live with Him and, and serve Him throughout all eternity without my sin nature. Oh, hallelujah, amen. And you too can. It would be the same for you. you. You can have the view that Paul had in Philippians 3, verse 20. He says, our true citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We do. Any true believer is eagerly waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the end awaits us all. It awaits us all. And for some of us, it could be sooner than we think. So please don't think of yourself as invincible. Or don't think of yourself, well, I'm assured of a retirement. Wrong. Not the case. I could name a number of my friends who have died in their 20s and 30s. You probably too. Same for you. So we're not assured of tomorrow. And so at that final moment, where will your hope lie? Well, for me, I want to live in a way that when I see death approaching, if I see death approaching, I want Jesus Christ to be my greatest treasure. I want to long to be with Him for eternity more than anything else. And so as I look back on my life, I want to see how Jesus Christ has been working in my life, how He's been conforming me into the image of Christ. No, I'm not perfect. A long ways away from it. Neither are you. But hopefully you can, you can, you can see progress Hopefully you can say, I am being, I'm in this process of sanctification. I'm being conformed into His image. And so I want my last words, hopefully if I have a tombstone, I, I would love some of these words to be written on my tombstone, and I hope you do too. Let this be your motivation for faithful living in God's will. And my friends, let's live in God's will so that we can die and live with hope. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you for Paul's words here, precious Holy Spirit-inspired words of Scripture. May they be dear to us. May we take them to heart. May we, may we come to the end of our life and honestly be able to say like Paul says here, Make us faithful. Give us a desire for Your will. For Christ above everything else, may He be our greatest treasure. May we defeat sin with that superior pleasure. Father, we th- this is just not natural. It's certainly not according to the world's way of thinking and their values and so forth. So would You renew our minds in the Scriptures so that we would think this way. So that we would act in a way that's pleasing to You and our entire life and death would bring You honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.